Um, if you have your Bibles with you, it would be good to keep them uh, open as we follow through these funny little passages here. Uh, it seems like Jesus is jumping around, but really there's a, a theme linking, uh, linking them, and uh, it's a very critical theme. It's a, a theme that's pretty uh, uh, neglected, I think, in our churches today. And it wasn't in my father's day, but it's the theme of judgment. Not a popular thing to preach on. And, uh, but Jesus does. He does a lot. And he does in this passage. Uh, this passage occurs in that middle section of Luke's gospel. We've got to understand Luke's gospel is a, a very theological statement, but it's a strange way to talk about theology and belief. It's stretched over two books, and it's a theology that breaks uh, theology into histories. There's a history of Israel, the history of the time of Jesus, and then the history of the church and how they link together. And uh, this is what uh, Luke is trying to develop here is an understanding of God's great historical work across these very distinct types of relationship that he has with the world and particularly with Israel. And in the, the closer context, he's, he's in the middle section of the book where Luke writes his, his story. He has a lot of things that are in the other Gospels, particularly the Synoptic Gospels. But in the middle, it's a journey that's uh, where he's heading towards Jerusalem. And it's like uh, heading towards the big showdown with the temple authorities, with the heart and the creme de la creme of Judaism. That's where he's heading. And that happens in critically when he enters the, the temple and overturns the tables. It's a theological thing. And so he's been teaching his disciples along the way what it is to be true and to understand their ministry in the light of this threefold historical breakdown before they get to the showdown. They've got to understand what this is all about. They can't be uh, presuming they know, and they do. And so much of the teaching that occurs there, he's teaching them, but it's within earshot of this entourage that you know, grabs a hold of the, the Jesus movement of the 12 and Jesus and they, they gather people as they go and it becomes a people movement and so people are listening in and oftentimes it's hard to discern is Jesus speaking to the crowds or is he speaking to the 12 and this is one of these situations where it gets a bit ambiguous uh, the immediate preceding context Jesus has been speaking to the disciples about the the responsibility of being a, uh, a shepherd of God's flock or a teacher, uh, a servant of servants. And he, he expounds the fact that the master of the house is going to return someday and hold accountable those that he's left in control while he was away for how they've been treating the other servants. It's a very interesting theology of ministry. And that's the context here. And, and uh, as he's been listening to that, Peter in uh, the previous chunk of scripture there in verse 41 basically he himself says and you can see it in your scriptures he says um, Lord are you telling this parable about masters and servants are you telling it for us or for them the wider group you know I don't get it and uh, now I think this passage really is fundamentally about people like me who have been entrusted with people like you God's chosen and precious servants. And uh, the issue that we're looking at today is the issue of judgment. 
Not a really palatable thing. I mean, you don't pack people into church with, say, come along, hear the man rail against judgment or about judgment today. You know, but we live in an age that's so narcissistic. We want to be stroked positively when we come to church, don't we? We want to hear about how wonderful we are, or at least how wonderful God thinks we are. And uh, that's really not what Jesus is on about. That would not be adequate teaching. And so we have these four little parabolic sections, and they're actually joined together, and they deal with three false ideas of God's justice, three false ideas of judgment, and therefore three false bases for confidence before God. But I find these quite, ever, uh, quite uh, familiar in a lot of places. In verses 49 to 53, Jesus begins, and here's his policy speech. I have come to cast fire on the earth. <laughs> That's a good way to win friends and influence people, isn't it? Especially in this age. I mean, uh, you, know, you wouldn't become the leader of government or opposition if... I've come to cause division. When we've seen in the press just recently how that can get you sacked from the party if you don't step in line. And that's the nature of Jesus, though. You see, he can see that these people who are following are following with misunderstanding. They don't understand what he has come to do. When Jesus steps on the world, into the world, when the author comes to rewrite the script, it's going to disrupt the structures and the cultures that have built up there. That's what he's saying. Not only that, he says, I've come to cast fire on the earth, and oh, that it was already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. How great is my stress until it's accomplished. We must never get the impression that Jesus just floated through life untouched by worldly things. Jesus knew what was going to happen down the road. He knew where he is heading. He knew the passion ahead. And it was a weight upon him. He could see already that day. Thank God we can't in our lives. But what we have to understand these words is to understand that these are words out of his cousin's mouth first. They were uttered by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is the one who has basically set the agenda for the Christ who is coming. And when people were asking John the Baptist, probably 18 months earlier, you know, what can you tell us about the Messiah? Then he pointed out that this Messiah would come and he would, unlike John, he wouldn't just baptize you in water. He would baptize you into Holy Spirit and fire. Now, we use and throw away, throw around theological terms like baptism in the spirit quite haphazardly in a way that John and Jesus and Luke certainly didn't. And the baptism of the spirit was not some warm inner glow that you got by you know, coming to a particularly good church service. Baptism in the spirit was actually in Aramaic was the idea of being plunged into the fiery breath of God. The spirit being the breath of God. And John explains that in that uh, passage that we had read for us in Luke chapter 3, that uh, it's a judgment metaphor. It's not a metaphor of cuddliness. 
and warm fuzzies. He speaks of this, this Messiah coming and he's winnowing forkers in his hand. He's just like a farmer with the wheat and he's, he's tossing the wheat, as these people would have seen that dozens of times, tossing the wheat in the air and the breath of God is separating out. It's a work of judgment, separation. And the chaff is going to be burnt up and the grain is going to be stored. And John is very urgent that people understand that this Messiah is not coming just to say, hey, I'm here, guys. Great to see you. No, he's going to actually come and he's going to judge Israel and separate them. This sort of idea of judgment and separation is particularly difficult to get across in this age where the fundamental virtue in our society is what? Inclusion, not separation. This cuts against the grain. This goes against what people think God should be about. We've got his agenda all cut out for him. He should be bringing people together. But that's not what Jesus nor the Spirit does. And as Jesus says this, I think he noticed the long faces amongst his disciples. And, and Jesus suddenly sees here and he, he looks at him and he goes, do you think I've come to bring peace on the earth? And the penny suddenly drops that these people thought they were about to enter an era of niceness. Happy days are ahead. Come to Jesus and all your troubles will be, you know. And this is not the message of Christ. And Jesus quickly says, no, I tell you, I haven't come to bring peace, but rather division. From now on in one house will be five divided against three, three against two. And he rattles off the different relationships. And some of you would know that coming to Christ has done that. In other words, Jesus is saying, the coming of myself into this world will disrupt even the most fundamental of human relationships, even those unbreakable bonds between father and son and mother and daughter, mother-in-law and daughter, all those things which you took for granted as inviolable will be stressed. And I can introduce you to people in this city and people out of my churches in the past particularly people from the Middle East who know that these words are true. I can introduce you, and this is a sorry tale. It's not what you came to church to hear, but it's truth. I can introduce you to a woman who in Egypt, when her older sister accepted Christ, they lived in an apartment in Cairo. Her father came out, took her out onto the fire escape and threw her off. And this sister had accepted Christ too. And the only way she could live was to flee to Australia. Now, I can repeat that story again and again. I can introduce you to people who have disappeared relative to their families in the Middle East because it's just the way of Christ. That's how it is. Three against two. Two against three. Christ demands an allegiance that's greater than culture. He demands a commitment to him as Lord. The world demands an allegiance to culture. It demands an allegiance to itself as Lord. You can't have both. And that's what Christ is saying when he comes. 
And you see, I think deep down this animosity of the three against two and the two against three is really because fundamentally at the core, every human being knows that they are defying God. They know themselves to be rotten to the core. And the way you deal with guilt, the easiest way, the neurotic way, is you project it onto those that are making you feel guilty, those who've got right with God. Should we be surprised that the world does not hold us in esteem today? Well, that's the first way that these, the first false view of judgment happens when you tend to think that blessing is normal, that this is the age of blessing. Come to Christ and everything will be onky-dory. But then he said, <laughs> he tells a little parable instead of just saying it straight. He says, you see a cloud arise in the west. You can read the weather symbols, etc., you're experts at weather it's funny we always talk about weather first thing I talked about when I walked in here this morning was the weather (laughs) we're all experts of the weather Jesus is saying but hey look at the storm clouds brewing we're heading towards Jerusalem don't you see he's saying in my ministry in the miracles that I'm doing in in who I am in what I'm saying in what I'm demanding don't you see that something greater is happening than just the weather. You hypocrites. I wonder whether he's talking to the disciples there. But you see, what their problem was, was that they do not know, in verse 56, you do not know how to interpret the present time. Isn't that an interesting verse? You do not know how to interpret, literally, the times. You see, Christianity is not a technology of being blessed. It's not a mystery or a magic that you can pick up and learn a few things to make your life better. In fact, if I turn on the TV and look at Christian television, that's what I'm told again and again. If only you know this latest technology, you can affect your life. You can affect the world. You can't find a car park when you go shopping? Pray. You've got, you feel like you're in a bad place, the clouds are brewing, the atmospheres are working against you. You heard that term? Pray. Effectively, this turns prayer into magic that we can change the world. Jesus never promised that. That's not the nature of the Christian life. The Christian life is about a history. It's about the times. It's on a timeline. It's about a God who has come back to claim his world and demands allegiance. It's about a crisis point in that history that is Calvary, where God defeats evil and demands his allegiance back from the world. Do we know how to interpret the times? Jesus never thought like that. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he doesn't say, oh, Lord, deliver me from this hour, does he? He says, what, am I going to pray that rubbish? (laughs) No. 
It's not the nature of it. It's not the church's experience. Peter says, this Peter who was asking all the questions in this exchange, says, don't be surprised in 1 Peter 4.12 at the fiery ordeal that comes upon you as if something strange is happening to you. That's normal Christian life. Folks, we need to understand that the nature of the gospel is about peace, but it's peace with God, not peace with the world. It's peace with God now, peace with the cosmos tomorrow. It's a time thing. And in this time, we get peace with God. The other happens after Jesus returns. We've got to understand the time thing, which is the gospel. So that's the era of supernaturalism, I call it. It's a magic way of thinking. Turns the gospel into a technology. That's not the nature of the gospel. But then Jesus just jumps into another parable. What's he doing in verses 57 to 59? He goes and he says, and and why do you judge yourself for what is right? See, I, I don't think Jesus sat down and ever wrote these sermons and had time to really polish them. He just gets an image in his head and he throws it out there. And he throws out this one here about which is typical and people knew about debtors court in these days that when you ran up a debt with someone they could call it in if you didn't pay it because you thought oh it's just i couldn't care less <laughs> then they'd charge interest on that debt and then if you still thought oh well i've got time then they could send the bailiff around to collect something as surety from your property and and if you still didn't pay your debt at that point you could be thrown into jail and you'd eke out an existence until you paid the debt <laughs> or your family came to the 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 uh, the uh, your your salvation and that's what he's talking about but what he's really talking about is the urgency issue that these people can tend to think that judgment is not urgent. I do not have to think about it. The other idea we had was that blessing is the new normal, but this is different. This is, there is no urgency. We don't need it. We can put it off. Judgment, my friends, is real, not imaginary. And in fact, Jesus says, you don't get out till you pay the last cent. It's exact. God doesn't use a broad brush stroke. He knows exactly what we owe. And this is the nature of, of the issue. What Jesus is advocating here is that if you've got any brains at all, if you only knew God and how much he knows what you owe, you'd be settling out of court. You'd get right before it even got to court. You wouldn't play fast and loose with justice especially God's justice. This is the error that I call universalism, where there is no urgency. As I said before, the cardinal sin today in society, it's pseudo-Christianity. It comes from liberal Christianity. It's this idea, the cardinal sin is exclusion. Modern ears cannot tolerate the idea of separation, of judgment. But Jesus is saying, the fact that you aren't in jail at the moment, the fact that God's judgment hasn't been executed, doesn't mean it won't be. He's on the way. You're living in an amnesty period. This is the gun buyback period. 
but he will come from your weaponry. Be sure of it. Folks, this is the issue that divides this denomination. It didn't divide Baptists 50 years ago. This is the issue that has divided and gutted the Church of Europe. It's universalism. It's this idea that you are safe. There is no urgency. And I am just saying to you today, this is the issue I would die on. This is the hill that I would fight for. This is the issue that separates the true church from the false. The secular and the atheists have affected the gospel of judgment and they believe that everyone will be saved. Even the Baptist denominational college in this denomination preaches that and that's why I would never put this on tape, never send anyone there. Universalism is utterly against what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I tell you, you don't get out until you've paid the last penny. The judgment of God is a reality that is coming. Imagine going to your local doctor and you've been feeling pretty crook. And you sit down. Would you go back to this doctor? If you sat down in the surgery and you're sitting talking to the doctor and he says to you, well, what do you want me to tell you? (laughs) I promise not to use the C word. You want to hear that you're well, I'm a doctor, you're well. That would be medical negligence, would it not? That doctor should be struck off the list, should he not? And yet you go to a doctor of theology and they will tell you, what do you want to believe? What will make you feel good? There is no judgment. I've debated this in public with theologians at the Baptist College. I'm known... You know what my nickname was when I went to the Baptist College? The Fundamentalist. And I felt that was a badge of honour. Because if I'm going to be in the ring, they'll want to have two people in my corner, Paul and Jesus. And then I can face any foe. But that's the nature of what we are fighting here for, folks. If you accept universalism, if you think there's no urgency and no judgment to come, that will affect everything you sing here, everything you do here. It will affect the mission of the church. Praise God that you've had a, a history of this church of appointing pastors who know that stuff and have led you in the way of light, not that lie. It may be unpopular today, but it's not the way of Jesus. And lastly, Jesus then comes to a couple of uh, stories which he has heard on the news recently. There were some present at this very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And uh, you can see what they're saying. And, and Jesus says, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? He's picking up on their assumptions, their way of thinking, which is a very typical popular Australian way of thinking. Not amongst the elites, but amongst your mates. You know, 
often these people agree with Jesus that God's judgment operates in the world. One, that judgment is real, not imaginary. They believe that. They believe that God is in the world. He's omnipresent. It's going well so far. But they believe that they're safe. Why do they believe they're safe? Because you can always find someone worse than you. That's the way the average Aussie breaks down. It's called moralism. It's a false view of judgment. They break down the, the, the world and the whole population in Australia. You basically have good blokes, cobbers, nudge, nudge. We know we're not perfect. And then beneath you, you've got drongos and then mongrels beneath that. <laughs> now, that gives me confidence because God's going to deal with the mongrels, <laughs> the Putins. I agree with judgment, but it's a distorted view. We think that God's standard of righteousness is our standard of righteousness. We think that the yardstick that God uses to judge the world is our distorted, floppy, and self-interested yardstick that makes us feel safe. That is... uh, really sort of mixed up, it gets mixed up with the idea of karma, you know. And, and Jesus, he, he's heard the gossip, he knows the news, he's read the papers on the trip. And he says, uh, twice he says, this incredible words. He says, no, I, I tell you, but unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. Now, th- there was this terrible story going around that Pilate had, saw, had slaughtered some worshippers when they went up to one of the sacrificial feasts and they're just about to get their their animals slaughtered and they were slaughtered instead you know and and people would been chatting about that and inferring about it and they'd be inferring that that gosh these people got to the 11th hour and almost got right with god they almost atoned for their sin god must have stepped in to stop it happening in the form of that rotter pilot this is entirely par for the course for pilot law to himself bloodthirsty mongrel jesus said "Nah, you can't think like that you can't infer from bad luck to God's judgment you don't know the hand of God it's hidden in history it's in history but the ultimate judgment is the one when you face him face to face and if you don't repent then the sort of thing that happened to them is the sort of thing that's going to happen to you and then he goes on with another one what about the towel that fell around the temple Siloam and it fell on people you know it's a I mean, this isn't a technology. It's not Jesus in saying keep away from cathedrals when they're being renovated or something. It, it, but people were inferring that somehow these people, even in the temple, they got too close to God. He saw them coming and made the tower fall on them. It says superstition. And they're inferring about God's judgment. He's saying, forget all that superstition. You know, they weren't worse offenders than you. Bad things happen to everyone. This is not a perfect world it's not a fair world no I tell you unless you repent you'll always likewise perish now some people go along the lines of this that they say 
Yes, but this was in Jesus' day, and then Jesus died for the sins of the world, and so now everyone's safe. Sort of like a half-universalism solution. But that's not how Peter saw it. When he preached to these people, probably, I don't know, 18 months later, probably less, it's hard to estimate the time here, when Peter preached, having healed a lame man in the temple precincts, he told them to, guess what? Repent, therefore, and turn back the times of refreshing may come. If you really want to experience the good things of God, repent. It's conditional. So we haven't got these choices between the nice God and the nasty God, between a God who has made you safe and a God who's made you unsafe, who's threatening. There's a third way. It's that you have a God who's both loving and just and judging. But he's made a way out. And the pennies you pay to get out of court is repentance. That's the nature of the beast. That's the heart. Paul, the apostle, this was not just for Jews. When Paul preaches to the elites at Mars Hill in Athens, what does he say? He says, one of the first verses I ever memorized, and I'm always forgetting it, God commands all men everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he will judge the world through a man that he has appointed. You want proof? He's raised him from the dead. That's interesting, isn't it? That the resurrection is not a symbol that we're safe. It's a symbol that judgment is coming. And that the man and the standard by which we will be judged is Jesus Christ, not Jeff Pugh. With that mongrel, you might get through. But with Jesus Christ, we haven't got a hope. Because he is the standard God measures us by. And that was the apostles' message at the end. Folks, to finish off, if you have any doubt that everyone in this room will face judgment and everyone downstairs in the cafes and in the car parks and on the footy fields today is going to face the same judge in he will measure them by his yardstick of Christ, then we have the testimony of the baptism of fire that Christ went through. That's the marker. If God did not spare his own son, but placed him in the fires of the Spirit at Calvary, then he will stop at nothing to execute justice in his cosmos. These people, by the time Jesus gets to Jerusalem and has the showdown, they don't believe in him, they don't repent, and they sealed their fate. In the years 60 to 70, Jerusalem is obliterated by the Romans in the Roman Jewish wars, just as Jesus said. Testimony number two. The wonderful thing, if you get to the climax of Luke, it's in Acts chapter two, where the fire metaphor returns. And 
Luke makes this point diagrammatically, explicitly, in 3D. When on the day of Pentecost, what happens? The Spirit is poured out. And have you ever noticed the significance? The wind of God, the breath of God, blows through a place like this. And tongues of fire are scattered on each of them. They are being baptized into the fiery breath of God. And none of them get scorched. Why? How come they could live to tell that tale in the presence of intimate holiness, the very fiery breath of God? It's because they had repented and changed the attitude about Jesus. And they could safely cohabit with the very Holy Spirit of God. That's the message of Luke. Folks, as we sit here this morning, I just hope I can give you a little bit of a sense of the awe of the great fortune that you have if you have repented and given your life to Christ and you've changed your attitude towards him and he is Lord, not you, not your family. If you call him Lord of all and he is Lord of all indeed, then you are safe. It's a condition. And you can enter into the very fiery presence of God without fear. However, it is moot of me this morning that if you have not decided to make Christ Lord and accept his offer of amnesty, then you are living on borrowed time. And the day will come when he will exact from you the last drachma for every sin you've committed. I'm a doctor of theology. That's what I've been appointed to tell you. My job is done. Your job is to make sure you understand the time in which you live. I'd suggest today that if this is something that you have never quite resolved, and I don't know who you are, etc. don't know you well at all, but don't you step out of this building until you get hold of someone who was up here or Mason skulking in the back there. <laughs> or myself and my wife, and you say, how can I be sure that I can be safe in the presence of God? That is the most critical question you can ask in your life. Feel free to ask it. We'd love to help you. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you this day that we have been caught up in your history, brought alongside the work of your Son through the Holy Spirit, given eyes to see and minds to understand what your way in the world is. Lord, we pray this day you'd leave us from this place understanding our great privilege of being people who effectively are justified. We have been judged. But Christ, the one who took the wrath of God upon himself, is the justifier. We thank you, Lord, for this fact in Jesus' name this day. Amen.